catechism. And our Baptist catechism, this is uh, question number 40. It's a great question to just kind of meditate on, to think over. But what are the benefits? I can read on my phone, but I can read it here. What are the benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? He would read the answer with me. The benefits which in this life do accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification are assurance of God's love, peace of conscience, fellowship with Christ, joy in the Holy Spirit, increase of grace, the privilege of prayer, and perseverance therein to the end. I would just encourage you that uh, one of your quiet times this week, just kind of meditate on that. Mm-hmm. What an awesome answer to that question. And um, I was reading it this morning, and I'm like, wow, that is that is fantastic. Um, there's also scriptures in the digital hymnal. If you want to know, like, what is this coming from? Is this even biblical? Is this scripture one of those passages underneath the answer on the digital hymnal? So you can check those verses where that answer comes from. Um, we have a, a special guest that is going to be preaching in the last week we had Kel Parker, which I happened to miss, and, and I'm glad that he was able to come here. He did a wonderful job, and so that's very encouraging. Kel was a part of our college ministry, and we love uh, Kyle, and, uh, Kyle and, and Kelly. But we are, uh, I'm going to have um, Ubi, a good friend of mine, Ubi, to come up and preach the word. I'm going to actually pray for him before he preaches the word to us. Ubi is a great friend of some of us, and I've known him for a few years now, and some of y'all have gotten to know him better over the last year, and he's just a great Christian leader here in Evansville, and I've gotten to know him just by going to Starbucks in town, and we've become friends, and uh, he's going to probably mention it, but he has just written a book on uh, followship, which is an interesting topic that doesn't really get talked about a lot in the Christian Christian world, a lot about leadership, not a lot about followership, which we are called to follow Christ. Right? So it's a great, important biblical topic. Let me pray for Uwe as he brings the word for us. Dear Lord, we pray for Uwe. Thank you so much that he was able to come and preach the word more to us. And we thank you for his friendship. We thank you for his family. We thank you for his work and his ministry here in Evansville. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to use him to further your kingdom, to reach many for the, for the gospel. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um. Let me just preface everything I want to say with, uh, by actually pointing to the fact that when someone will be in table in, uh, in Indiana and the Midwest, really anyone in the United States, they should point to the fact that they're probably not European. <laughs> so, and so as I go forward, you notice I have an accent. And um, though I, I was born in the United States, but uh, after my parents graduated, we went back to Niger and I lived there. Um, throughout my teenage years, I came back about 20 years ago. So when I speak somewhere for the first time, because of my accent, I actually have to make some kind of a covenant. Maybe covenants to people, okay, but we'll just say contract, okay? I basically make a contract with the people I'm speaking with, okay? And you're probably looking at me and thinking, dude, you have an accent, you know, I don't really know you, I am definitely not making a contract with you. Typically, that would be smart, but not today. Uh, because you really don't have a choice. I have a platform at this point, so we are going to <laughs> so, so here's how the contract goes. It goes something like this, okay? Um, I'm going to do everything in my power to sound American, okay? Um, because when I start to get nervous, my accent just gets thicker, thicker, thicker. And then it's almost impossible for you to actually even make any sense of what I'm trying to say, okay? So I'm going to do my best, I promise, to sound American. 
Now, you on your part, you have to tune your ears to Radio Nigeria, okay? So if you do your best to understand Nigerian English, and I do my best to speak American English, we'll meet in the middle and make sense of what Kashan say, right? Yeah. Right, cool. Um, it's even more important that we actually hold to this contract today because I'm supposed to be speaking to you guys on Ecclesiastes. Anyone who has read Ecclesiastes knows that that is a difficult scripture or difficult book to tackle. Um, because at the end of the day, um, the message of Ecclesiastes is vanity, of vanity life is meaningless. And for Christians, that is difficult to handle. I'm like, for real? I mean, like, I mean, from a Christian worldview, that doesn't even make sense at all. Now, um, historically, we know that there was a wrestle. You know, the scholars, um, the, the early church actually struggled with whether or not the Ecclesiastes should actually even be included in the canon because of that message. Because, you know, the overall theme of Ecclesiastes was life is meaningless. But thank God they did. Thank God they actually included it um, in scripture because it is inspired and because there's very much force to learn from it by God's spirit today. So what I might think I'm gonna do is um, I'd like us to use 1 Corinthians 15, 19 to basically frame how we look at Ecclesiastes at this point, okay? And um, it says something like this, 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitted more than anyone. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitted more than anyone. Now, in the context of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is basically laying out an apologetic for our freedom from sin and life in life in God on the basis of Christ's physical death and resurrection. Okay, that's the context of what's, what's going on here. But it, it's interesting that Paul seems to actually agree or affirm the message of Ecclesiastes. So as, as, you know, as you guys go through this book, keep in mind this notion that if our hope, if our hope in Christ was only for this life, life would truly be hopeless and meaningless. And this is what the author of Ecclesiastes is pushing at. This is what it's pointing to. Life really is meaningless. Now, of course we know for us Christians that's not, you know, that's not the case because, because Christ has resurrected. Because Christ has resurrected, Ecclesiastes may not hold true for us. But the great thing about Ecclesiastes is it draws us in to the life of the unbeliever. It draws us into the life of the outsider. You know, it's very possible, you know, that we could have, you know, I think the number was we've been in our faith for a while, we've walked with Jesus Christ for quite some time. And I can't speak for you guys, but there's that tendency and temptation to forget what it was like before we knew Jesus. Especially if we came to Christ at a younger age. There's a tendency to forget. And that, I, I, for me, that's one of the blessings of Ecclesiastes. That I can always come back to that book and read it. And hear. And remember what life was like for me before Jesus. Right? 
Um, traditional holds that in all of scholars, really, there seems to be this general consensus that when Paul, that when Solomon is writing Ecclesiastes, he's transitioning. Okay, you know, we know the story of Solomon. You know, David, his father, hands over rulership of Israel to him, the United States of Israel. Okay, this is prior to the breakup. That David hands over the United States of Israel to Solomon, and you know, God gives Solomon great wisdom. I mean, there's no man as wise as Solomon outside Christ, right? But somehow Solomon turns away from God. Okay, and scholars believe that it that it is during that transition where Solomon starts to turn away from the Lord that he writes this book. Some scholars believe that it is. Some scholars say it's when he's transitioning away. Some scholars say it's when he's transitioning back to faithfulness. But the general consensus is that Paul is in this transition. Either he's walking away from the Lord, being carried away by foreign women, or he's coming back after God has disciplined him. But it's in this transition. So, it, so in a lot of ways, the Holy Spirit captures the reality of what it's like to know God or to be apathetic or to not work with him or to not fear him. That's the power of Ecclesiastes. So today we have to be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 12 to, uh, through 26. Now, uh, before we go there, there's something that's really interesting. And um, let's see here. It's Ecclesiastes 1.13, okay? The author says, I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. Right, so that this is what's happening. This is this is this is Ecclesiastes, right? If, 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 there's, a, if there's a verse to remember in Ecclesiastes, as you're reading through, if you forget what's going on, come back to one thirteen. The author is basically saying, "Listen, I applied my mind to look at what's happening under heaven." So that's so Ecclesiastes is a survey or a report of what um, of what the wisest man, Barnum. Outside of Christ, what the wisest man saw of life. So if you're reading through, you know, sometimes you can be reading through the Bible, through the book of the Bible, and we forget, you know, it's, it's you know, it's, it, you know, we're talking about 12, 13 chapters here, you, you know, we can forget. Come back to 1.13. Basically, the author is saying, I've applied my mind, I've, I've used wisdom to look at life, and I've concluded that it is vanity from vanity. Now, the author does something, okay? First, he says, I gave myself to experiencing all kinds of pleasure. Okay? He said, so I sought to understand life under the sun. I sought to understand temporal life, life on this side of eternity, um, by basically exposing myself to all sorts of pleasure. And I had the ability to. No one had amassed the power that I had, that I had amassed. No one had amassed the wealth that I had. No one had to come up with. So I applied myself to understanding earth by basically just experiencing all sorts of pleasure. And he concludes with, this is vanity of vanity. It is meaningless. It is chasing of the wind. Right? Sometimes we find in Ecclesiastes again, the author then says, okay, so I then decided to apply to actually search out what life under the sun looks like by applying myself to labor, to my work, right? And if we know anything about Solomon, I mean, this guy, he led incredible projects, right? He built a weaponry for the nation of Israel. He built an amazing palace for himself and his Egyptian bride. And then he built this incredible temple. 
that at that time had not been seen anywhere in the ancient world, ancient world right? And then the Bible talks about people coming from everywhere to come see that this guy's feet. So Solomon was a hard-working, diligent, wise man, right? This was a man, so he applied himself to labor, to work, to industry. And guess what he concludes? <laughs> he concludes, this too is meaningless. I mean, like, if not for Jesus, this would probably be the most depressing book I've ever read in my life. Right? Vanity upon vanity. So, so in, um, in, uh, in, in chapter 2, verses 12, he now says, okay, so I then decided to explore life looking or contrasting wisdom and foolishness. Okay? So that's where we start. Um, Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 2. Starting from verse 12. Then I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the king's successor be like? He will do what has already been done. And I realized that there's an advantage to wisdom over folly, like the advantage of light over, that, over darkness. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I also knew that one fate comes to them both. So I said to myself, what happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been overly wise? And I said this to, I, and I said to myself that this is also futile. For just like the fool, there is no lasting remembrance of the wise, since in the days to come, both will be forgotten. How is it that the wise person dies just like the Wow. You know, it's, that word, you know, and I, I remember when I'm, you know, I lived in D.C. for a number of years before I moved there. And I'm, I actually attended a public school there, uh, the University of the District of Columbia. And that was the first time I'd actually taken a philosophy class. It was, you know, just basic introduction to logic. And I remember being in that class, and the professor comes in, and the professor's like, what is wisdom? You know, and people are just, you know, I mean, like, we basically wrestle over wisdom for probably about 30 minutes. You know, and I gave a good response, and my professor just looked at me and basically I wasn't that invisible. <laughs> so I think that was my first exposure to the fact that, the, that what I believe as a Christian, right, is completely different from what the world holds to be true. That a lot of times they actually kind of actually counterintuitive. But biblical wisdom, ultimately, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, those of us who are Bible college students and seminary students, we tend to think that people really care what the, you know, what the Greek of a word is and all of that. I, I don't know. I don't think so. So, but at the end of the day, okay, I did a word study, and at the end of the day, the word wisdom, biblically, simply means skill. Skill. But you know, interestingly, when when we speak, you know, kind of like just. In every day, when we say, oh, that person is wise, typically what we're what we actually saying is a lot of times is, man, that person has understanding. They have a way to work. They have a way of communicating stuff. They're really good at giving advice, right? But that's not really what scripture speaks of when it speaks of wisdom. To be wise from a biblical perspective is to be skilled. Okay, 
So, so you can be a wise uh, plumber, which means that you are skilled at your trade of plumbing. You could be a wise lawyer, which means you are a skilled lawyer. But the wisdom the Bible pushes above, now the Bible does hold up skill in your trade as a virtue. But even more, the greatest virtue the Bible holds up is wisdom at life. That you can be skilled at life. Right? So, so, so what, what the author of Ecclesiastes says, I, I looked, I looked and observed and analyzed, and I concluded that it's meaningless to be skilled at life when contrasted or compared to the one who's in the skill that life. And he says, because they both have the same end. So, so why bother? You know, this is what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying. Why bother to be skilled at life? Why bother to listen up? Why bother to follow or focus on the family? Why bother to be a skilled dad? Why bother to be a skilled mom? I mean, I'm going to end up in the same place as that foolish dad, foolish mom. And if my kids grow up to be wise, they're going to end up in the same place also. Why bother? Why bother to follow Dave Ramsey? Why do I want to be skilled at stewarding finances? Why bother? And see, that's why it's important to frame Ecclesiastes in 1 Corinthians 15. Because if I lose sight of Christ, I have to agree. I don't have a choice. I have to agree with Ecclesiastes that life is meaningless, that it's a pursuing of the wind, of the wind. It's vain. Okay. Now, interestingly, as we go forward, <coughs> you see that the author of Ecclesiastes does something very interesting. He says, nevertheless, you need to obey God's commandments. <laughs> and we'll look at why. We'll look at why he says we need to obey God's commands. But it's really interesting. He says, you know, nevertheless, we need to obey God's commands. But dude, listen, whether you're skilled at life or whether you, you're just completely unskilled and, and your understanding of life is completely rudimentary, it's like, you know, it, it doesn't matter because it's, it's vain. It's chasing up the wind. We all end up in the same place. It's horrible. But that's just the way it is. You know, that's just the way it is. I mean, it's, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but that's difficult to deal with. Right? I mean, that's, that's kind of hard to choose, isn't it? But he doesn't just say, he doesn't just say that, forgive me, I'm sorry. I just recently said I worked in the last minutes. Trying to experience. <laughs> he doesn't just say, he doesn't just say, that um, the pursuit of wisdom against remaining ignorant or foolish is vain because we end up in the same place. He also says that it's vain because both the wise and foolish, both the skilled and the unskilled, are eventually forgotten. You know, it's interesting. Um, who here knows uh, Alexander Bell? If you, if you know the name, Alexander Bell, raise your hands. Good. 
Who here knows the name Mahatma Gandhi? Who was his wife? Bell, where did he live? What were his passions? I mean, besides inventing the phone, what did he really care about? When was the last time you had a conversation and Bell came up? <laughs> when was the last time you actually checked out your Android or your iPhone and you said, man, thank God for this and Bell? So, so what the author of Ecclesiastes does is he uses two things. He uses life and legacy to measure, at least in this, in this particular instance. He uses life and legacy to measure the meaningfulness of life. And he's like, listen, we both end up the same place. Even though I'm skilled at life, I can't I can, I can run faster than death. It comes for all, and we answer it. And regardless of my great achievements, I will be forgotten. I mean, it's interesting. You know, we actually still have pyramids, but, science, but archaeologists struggle, still struggle, and study for hours trying to determine what particular pharaoh a particular pyramid belonged to. And they are, I mean, this, I mean, they go to school for decades. Can you imagine the loans those guys have to pay back? You know, they go to school, let's not talk about the ones I have to pay back. Okay. They go to school for decades and they can't decide on what pharaoh what pyramid belongs to. Imagine the amount of effort and work those men put to have those things built. They wanted some kind of memorial. You know, it's interesting, even we Christians, we fall into a temptation. How do you want to be remembered? What do you want your legacy to be? Forget the fact that we are simply called to make sure we transmit a legacy, the legacy, to the next generation. Forget the fact that as Christians, we are not called to leave our legacy. We are, we are called to make sure the greatest legacy, the only legacy worth holding on to, is passed on to the next generation. We still fall to that temptation of legacy. And until we remember Christ, until the Holy Spirit gives us that conviction, we actually start to think. I mean, maybe you've never been through it, but I remember my dad is in his early 70s, and last, last time I visited Nigeria was in December of 17. And I cherish those moments because we just, you know, we just, I, you know, I sit down with my dad and we just have some amazing conversations, and he just drops some serious wisdom. And I get this look on his face. And I was like, Daddy, what's going on? And the gist of the conversation was you wondered how you would remember or if you would be remembered. We all fall prey to that. We, we may not fall to it, but we all battle that temptation of legacy. If not for Christ, our despair would be just like what we are reading here. It's meaningless, it's a pursuit of the way. Why care to be skilled <coughs> when I end up just like the fool, victims to Why care to be skilled when neither I nor the fool will be remembered? It's amazing. And so, you know, and that's why that's why I keep on coming back to First Corinthians 15. Because when I was studying this, I was like, Ubi, dude, you will never be fighting back because this is so depressing. <laughs> I was like, this is so depressing. But thank God for Jesus. Thank God for our Savior. So because 
The author of Ecclesiastes comes to two conclusions. He says, if this is the case, there are only two ways I can respond. There are only two ways I can respond, since this is the case, okay? So here's what he says, starting from verse 17. Therefore, I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For everything, for everything is futile and a pursuit of the wind. I hated all my work that I had labored at under the sun because I must leave it to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will take over all my work that I labored at skillfully under the sun. This too is fuel. So I began to give myself over to despair concerning all my work that I had labored at under the sun. When there's a person whose work was done with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and he must give his portion to a person who has not worked for it, this too is futile and a great wrong. For what does a person get with all his work and all his efforts that he labors at under the sun? For all his days are filled with grief, and his occupation is sorrowful. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is futile. Now, it's funny, I didn't, you know, um, the times I see some guys driving Teslas or Mercedes or Lexuses, you know, sometimes I drive by certain neighbors and I'm like, turn that to my house. <laughs> sometimes I go on Facebook and I have some friends who are doing very well, I mean, and they're, you know, vacationing Mallorca, you know, some island out there, and I'm like, that, that is the life I got! Why? Why not me? I, you know, it's just, it's there. It's there. I want it. I want that nice car. I want that nice life. And then I come back to school. Then I come back to school. And what scripture tells me is that they struggle. What scripture tells me is if they have all that wealth and they don't know Jesus, even at night in their beds, they're still working. Their minds are going 100 miles an hour. They can't rest. They can't tend to their kids. They can't go to the kids' ball game and be at the kids' ball game. They can't really enjoy their wives and vice versa. And then the Holy Spirit says to me, Ubi, would you really trade that? I mean, you know, would you really trade living in Evanston, Indiana? Really cool city, by the way. I've traveled a lot. Really cool city. Friendly people. Would you really give up the life that you have and the kids that you have? Would you really give up knowing me and serving me so that you have that nice car and that big house? And develop that. And every time, Especially in a culture that more and more glorifies wealth and happiness, it's easy to forget that they have no rest. See, that's what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying. He's saying, listen, if, if the end of the wise and the foolish are the same, 
And if neither of them will be remembered, ultimately, this is one choice that I have, to despair of life, to give up, to let depression just have its rain on me. Why? I can't escape the that I won't be remembered. And despite how hard and diligently and skillfully and skillfully I labor, I don't even get to determine who, when I leave here, will get that. And I don't get to determine their outcome. I don't know whether they'll be wise and skilled. I don't know whether they'll be foolish. He says, that's one wrong. You know, it's interesting, um, I'll tell you the story, I remember this was years back, um, before I even came back to the States, this is a girl I was dating, different tribe in Nigeria. My dad found out that, um, that I had this girl with dating, and one day he comes to me and says, hey, you know what to do? Uh, you're a young kid, it's okay, you can date this girl, better not go anywhere. Because she's from this tribe. about 20 years later, okay, 20 years later, because I never forgot that. It wasn't that about 20 years later. I said, Dad, so, um, question for you. He's like, yeah, really, what's what? He's like, so Dad, what, what is the problem between us and that tribe? And you know what he said? He said, Ruby, to be very honest with you, I don't know. Huh. I just know that we don't trust them, we don't trust them. <laughs> and I said, Dad, would your dad know? He's like, no, if you need to tell me. I said, well, how about this granddad? He said, it happened such a long time ago. I doubt that my father's father knows why. We just know we don't trust each other. See, in our culture, tradition, history is passed on orally, right? It's all tradition. At some point, somehow, we lost it. So we literally don't know why we distrust another tribe. No clue whatsoever. Okay. <laughs> and you are wondering, Ubi, that's kind of like a funny trip. No, it's not really a funny trip. The reason I tell that story is to show you how on point the author of Ecclesiastes is. We won't remember. You know, and it kind of makes sense in a culture where, you know, History is transmitted orally, and then you know, for some reason, you forget it. It's harder in a culture, and it's more puzzling in a culture where history is actually passed on, written. There's so many things in our history, I said, I mean, the history of this country, that we've forgotten. And we can walk into any library, pick up a book, and read it. Speaking as Christians, the, the, speaking as Christians, we know that this country is headed where it's headed spiritually, because that's just the course of that's just the course of sin, right? And Christ actually said, "Listen, it's it's going to go that way, right?" But from a natural perspective, we also know this country is headed where it's headed because it's forgotten its history. 
And I can walk into any library. I can walk into any library and pick it up. But it's forgotten. So I get that's so depressing. If not, the resurrection. See, see, Ecclesiastes drives on the imperative of evangelism and discipleship. I mean, it drives you seriously. Seriously. Because this is what the outsider, those far from God, this is their reality. This is their reality. And, see, and this kind of leads to the second reaction, the second conclusion. He says, well, you know what? Verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy this work. I have seen that even this is from God's hand, because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from him? For to the person who is pleasing in his sight, he gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and accumulating in order to give to the one who is pleasing in God's sight. This too, even this, this too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. See, we can read this and make the mistake of thinking that uh, the, the author of Ecclesiastes is now saying, you know, do you really need to follow God? Because he'll give you peace and joy and happiness. And we can read that and think that this is actually consistent with the gospel, but it's not. <laughs> because he's not retracting his affirmation that life is meaningless. What he's saying is, listen, life is meaningless, but if you follow God, he will comfort you in the midst of a meaningless life. That's really what, that's what he's saying. He's not saying that God will give meaning to life. Right? That's not what he's saying. We really don't come to the idea or the concept of life and having meaning till we come to the resurrection. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's actually saying is, listen, you know what? Life is really meaningless. But at least you can enjoy it. At least you can have peace and joy and enjoyment if you follow God. And see, that's why, so I think sometimes, sometimes we might wonder why are unbelievers so pleasure driven? I believe that one reason they're so pleasure driven is because they don't have any other choice but to drown out the truth and be alive. It's meaningless. And that truth is it's no clearer than those who claim to be atheists. No purpose, no me. It just happened. I just happened to be here. And at some point, I'll just be. So while I'm here, I'll just enjoy it. That's what Kohelet, the writer of Ecclesiastes, is saying. Saying, listen, you know what? If you fear God, you know, it's his gift. He gives you, give you joy and peace. You will actually be able to enjoy your work, even though it's meaningless. Right? Because if when you leave, you still can't determine who you can give to. But at least 
you find some kind of joy and meaning in it. This this book is so inspired. I mean, it, I mean, it, if if for some reason your heart is cold towards sharing the gospel, if for some reason your heart is cold towards making friends with other believers, you need to immerse yourself in this. I encourage you to immerse yourself in it for two weeks and read nothing else. Because you know what? You do that, you do it seriously, you'll feel, you feel what you feel what meaningless feels like. What purposeless, what purposelessness feels like. That's what